Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Balagan. Israeli society seems to be divided than ever. Some ask if we are witnessing the ruin of the Third Kingdom. My guest today has many thoughts about the current situation of Israeli society and the political system. And that is what we're going to discuss. My guest is an Israeli author and philosopher, the winner of Israel's Ministry of Culture Prize and the Sapir Prize for a debut fiction. He has been awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for Authors, writes a weekly column in the newspaper Haaretz, and has been a visiting lecturer in the Jewish studies at Yale. I would like to say hello to Yair Asulin. Hi, Kobe. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Yair, you see what is happening these days in Israel. You know, all of the protesters on one end, the corona crisis, and its impacts on Israeli society. And it seems that crisis times always bring up the malfunctions in societies or, you know, even in companies, you can see it always that when things flow, you don't see the problems. But when something goes wrong, then everything seems to rise. What is your perspective about what's happening and, you know, what's happening with the Israeli society? I really agree with you that the coronavirus, the COVID-19, is only the trigger to what we see in Israel. And I think it's not only an Israeli phenomena. We can see it in the Western world in general. And this is what I call the end of the age of politics. I wrote about this before COVID-19 when most of the people didn't understand what I want from them. And I think a lot of people understand it now. What is the end of the age of politics? This is really in the situation that in between paradigms, the age of politics was a paradigm that we lived in around uh, 150 years in the Western world. The paradigms put the nation state in the center of the situation. Actually, in a lot of ways, It's not right about the American state, but it's right about Europe. And Israel, of course, is an outcome of the movement of the nation states in Europe that state wanted to replace God. In the first time in history, people said, we will erase God, actually, as Nietzsche said, uh, the death of God, and then we will put the state instead of God. Meaning that anything in the world will come from the state and to the state. It will be in the center. This is what I call the age of politics, which in a lot of ways was a response to the Industrial Revolution. 
because of the mass production and the changing in the consciousness of the people, we had to find a new story, a new theory to arrange the situation. And the nation state was this new story. And now as we live at least uh, two decades into the technological revolution, we see that the old story about the nation state, about the politics as the center of the world, the state as the center of the existence, it doesn't work anymore. And the COVID-19, it's the trigger to see what's happening anyway. I would like to ask you, the nation state, its foundations are uh, shared values, whether it's culture, a language, even religious, by the way, in some of the states, even though they try to separate state of, and religion, but eventually the majority, let's go to England, I think that most of them are, you know, Christians, I forgot the stream. And for example, in Ireland, the majority is Catholic and it brought a lot of tension between England and Ireland, but each one of the states has its own shared values. In Israel, mm-hmm. we actually formed the new Jew, what Ben-Gurion called. It was uh, creating something new and creating mm-hmm. actually a nation state of different tribes, people that their shared value was actually the religious. So you said a lot of things that we have to actually think of them. At first, in a lot of ways, actually, we seemingly try to create a new Jew, but we never did create a new Jew. This is a self-deception that we tell to ourselves, but it's not right. Let's be more accurate. Some group in the Jewish people tried to create a new Jew, and actually they didn't create it, and they just tell to themselves that they did create, but if you read the Declaration of Independence of Israel, you can see how it's so vague and so manipulative in a lot of ways, because we didn't create a new Jew, We just try to hide it and saying, no, we are the people who came out of the sea. No, we didn't came out of the sea. So this is the first thing that I would like to say. Second thing, you're right. The nation state was, had a shared value, had a shared religion in some places, shared territory, right? Right. But even if you have a shared values and a shared territory and a shared religion, it doesn't have to be under the system of the nations necessarily. I want to say something that it's more general. In time like ours, all of us were born and raised under the old paradigm of the nation state. It's very difficult for us to understand that there was a world before the nation state and there will be a world after the nation state. I mean, every era, in the end of the era, it's very difficult to people who was born and raised in the old era to imagine the new era. The new. But now, in our times, we are in between two stories. We think through the old story, but we live through the new story. And this gap, this is the tragedy and the huge opportunity that we live in. And I think that if you don't understand it, you can't understand what's happening now in Israel, and you can't understand the Western world in general, You can't understand the markets, why they're going up when the world is going down. You can't understand the politics, not only in Israel. You can't understand societies because everything is shaped by this gap between the old story 
and the new stories that we don't know what it is yet. Actually, in a lot of ways, this is complicated times. We are not able to know where we are going to. So when you are talking about the end of age of politics, and you look at Israel, and I mean, eventually, from what you're saying, the famous melting pot that David Ben-Gurion was trying to create worked until a certain point, or it didn't work at all, or it worked, you know, maybe a little bit. You know, at this time, it seems like we are splitting to the tribes again, you know, going back to the tribal culture in many ways. What's going to replace today's politics? As I said, and I'm trying to be honest about this in my columns and in my intellectual writing in general, I don't know. I mean, we're not able to know. We don't have yet the language to start to think about the new era. We have to understand it. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're similar to the 19th century. People in the beginning of the 19th century couldn't think about the situation of the nation state 70 years later. I mean, things change in the world. And when things change in the world, people are changing the same thing in the same way. So I think that our main uh, challenge today is to live without knowing in this unknown situation. We know that there might be an answer, but we don't know what it will be. And we're not able to see it because it's after the turn. So I think this is a situation today. I don't know what will replace the nation state as we see today, but what we are able to know is that it doesn't work anymore. I mean, people fighting for democracy. I don't know what does it mean, democracy in 2020. I don't know. I know what is democracy, yeah, the government of the people. I know what it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Or actually, even when I was born in the 80s, we didn't have the social, social media, media. etc. But right. now when people vote, I don't know, hundreds of times in a day in the social media, what does it mean to vote once uh, in four years? What does it mean that you vote and you don't know what the politicians will do with your uh, vote? You understand? And the same thing we can ask about a territory. A state is defined by its territory. But how we define the state in nowadays when we don't understand what is a territory anymore? I mean, we have the physical territory, but we also have the clouds. We also have the abstract abstract territory, the virtual territory. I mean, who is a sovereign in America, for example? the American government or actually Amazon that most of the American governments is on its cloud. I mean, what is privacy nowadays? What is the value of privacy? How we understand? We have to create distinction between values and the application of the values. I mean, a lot of people tell me, you know, the human nature has never changed. And they say, you may be right. But the application of the human nature is changing all the time. It is changing by the context. It is changing by the paradigm, by the story. Story is, you know, when you have a person, you have a consciousness, and it moves in the world, and you understand it by the context that it lives in. And I think that we have to remember it now when we're trying to find a solution, because we are not able today to find the solutions. What we can do? We can ask the right questions. We can look in our life and say what is relevance and what is no longer relevance. We will start to create a language 
And when this language will be created, we will be able to start thinking about what's happening now. But it's a long journey. And the people who are looking for a, no magical solutions, by definition, they will want to find the real solutions. Why? Because they will stay locked in the circle, in the old story. And now we are actually trying to create a new story. When you are talking about territories, you know, virtual territories and, and physical territories, some people will tell you that you are right that, you know, the U.S. government is based on uh, Amazon cloud services. But on a personal level, you and me, we both use Facebook, for example. Okay, we use social media. But nobody is forcing you to use social media. While when you have the government is ruling you, you know, Israeli government, American government, those are things that you have to play along. While with social media, you don't have to play along. You know, the TV, you can shut it down or uh, switch to yeah. another program. And with the state, it's not the same thing. I mean, you live in a city, it has its rules. You live in a state, it has its rules. The Israeli government is forming uh, laws. You're right. And here you are uh, talking about one more uh, important distinction between power and relevance. You're right that the state is more strong. It has more power. But the new world, social media, you know, all the force of communication, they have the relevance. No, in the 20th century, there was no distinction between power and relevance. Who was the stronger was more relevant. But in nowadays, we see a deep distinction between the states, which still have the power, so they can become more and more uh, totalitarian because of this. And the other things that they have the relevance, what moves you, what makes you excited, what makes you do things in the world. But when they feel that they are less and less relevant and maybe they are a bit uh, fanatic, they start to use more and more in power. And this is a problem. This is part of the situations that we are living today. As I see it, we have to choose between living in a totalitarian world. This is what I call the Chinese fantasy, which was before the corona. The same, the liberal order start to fantasize on China, which actually promise us economical livelihood or economical growth without giving a freedom. This is a Chinese fantasy. And a lot of people in the liberal order actually start to fantasize on this. And we see it. We have an example, of course, of the non-liberal states, Russia and Turkey and Israel in a lot of ways become like this, right? And uh, Hungary, of course. And in the other side, we can fight for our freedom. But it can't be, as I see it, through the political order, the order of the state. We will have to create a new order that will uh, fight for our freedom. The state was no longer able to do it anymore. So I would like to ask you, on one hand, we have the state. On the other hand, we have the corporates, as they are called. You know, all of these huge mm -hmm. the giants like Google, like Facebook. Amazon in a way, uh, Alibaba in China, and it seems like it's coming to a clash between the two. By the way, in some countries, like in Russia and China, Google and Facebook actually bend down. The Chinese told them what they can and can't do. Otherwise, they cannot uh, perform in China. Same with Russia. 
And those mm-hmm. huge corporates actually collaborate with those states. You're right. Actually, the real fight today is between the corporates and the states because they both want to shape the world, right? And as I see it, the corporates, they have to be in the side of the citizens because their option it will be to fight for the citizens of the people or to be in the side of the states and become nationalization under the state. There is no other option. The state will never give the corporates keep the power that they have today. But if the corporates will cooperate actually with the people and stop thinking that they are only businesses because they are not only businesses, they become right. a political entity political power yeah, yeah political have. players right. They become a political player more than they was in the 20th century. So they actually will have to face with the problem of uh, nationalization. I would like to go and uh, talk about your book, Alternatives to Despair. That's your last book that mm-hmm. was published, I think, like half a year ago. Yeah, yeah. In a great timing, you know, at the beginning yeah. of the COVID-19. Yeah, and all of its chapters are basically... You are walking through the Israeli society. A journey, yeah. A journey. What did you see on this journey? And why did you call it alternatives to despair? I mean, those are hard times in Israel and abroad. But as Israelis, I'm saying it, those are hard times. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew, there is a double meaning to the name of the book. It's instead of despair, and it's also in the place of despair. Right. In Hebrew, bimkom yehush, bimkom it's also instead of, and it's also in the place of. And I played with this double meaning. And in my journey, actually, I'm talking there with ministers and with uh, regular people. I'm going to the periphery. And I'm in the center of Israel and I'm in a lot of small situations. And what I saw, if I can give you a headline, is that the, our main problem is the gap between the way we live our life and the stories that we tell ourselves about our life. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can see people who live in a wonderful coexistence between Jewish and Arabs, but when you ask them, what are you voting for? They will vote to the extreme, extreme, uh, right, to the or... extreme right. Yeah. And this gap is a sign of degeneration. You cannot live for a long time as a society in this huge gap between the way you actually live your life, the acts that you are doing, and the stories that you tell yourself. In some point, it will explode. And I think this is what we see today. So when you're looking at Israel these days, and it's becoming very polarized, I grew up in Jerusalem. It was polarized even when I was a kid in the 70s. You were a kid in the 80s and the 90s. I believe that we were always polarized, but there was the term of mamlachtiyut. I never uh, know how to translate into English, but mamlachtiyut, it means that everybody is obliged to the same values or laws in a It's way. A, I think you can call it a statehood. It's a statehood. statehood. It seems that... This is fading away, especially with today's politicians. And that's the big dissonance you're talking about in your book between the day-to-day lives that people can live together and collaborate, 
But when they get to voting or to social media or to demonstrations, they will become very aggressive and at some point, you know, very violent. I don't know about the violence, but I think that the idea of statehood, this is what I'm trying to say about the age of politics, the idea of statehood of Mamlachtiyut is no longer able to exist. I mean, this idea that we have one story, you talk about the melting point, we are all the same and we are all have the same values, it's no longer able to exist. In some ways, it was in the 20th century because the relevance of the nation state was so strong that we actually didn't ask ourselves enough questions. But in nowadays, when the state become weaker and weaker and the story become weaker and weaker, and we no longer have the answers to answer ourselves, then the idea of status is no longer able to exist. So we are becoming much more... Uh, divided. I'm not sure that being divided is necessarily bad because we see the communities starting to grow all over again. I mean, because of the nation state, we in a lot of ways gave up on our uh, communities. Yeah, we become one big community. And now, no, there is a lot of communities and there is a lot of stories that coexist together. It's a complicated time now. In a lot of ways, it's also, it's even a tragedy to a lot of people. But we have a serious opportunity in this time to create a new thing and trying and to mark the things that we are trying to avoid to see and mark also what is no longer working. Times of change, it's very tricky. If you see only the bad things, in a lot of ways you won't survive it. But if you see the opportunity, you maybe even succeed to grow out of it. Do you think... that the state of Israel has the privilege, in a way, to split to those communities. Once again, a nation state was born under uh, different values that were gathered, but eventually, I think that the strongest thing was our Jewish identity, that with it, you know, Ben-Gurion and the founding fathers built a whole story about the new Jew, which eventually... When we are looking at what's happening today, it didn't transform into a real new Jew because we have all of these demons that are coming back from the past that are polarizing us back again. That's life, you know. Yeah, but when I'm looking at it, do you think that Israel has the privilege to become so polarized? I mean, what will reunite the people, if any will reunite the people? So... I don't think that Israel has a choice. It's not a question of the privilege if it has it or not. Right. It doesn't have the choice. This is our time. The idea of one big story no longer able to exist as far as I see, at least now. I think that we have to admit to ourselves that it never really exists. I mean, it right. was a self-deception from the beginning. I mean, it when was, I was a narrative. A Yeah, but it was a false narrative. When I was at Yale, I was teaching a course about what I call the origins of the Israeli society. Yeah? And when you look at the roots of the Israeli society, you understand that there was a problem from the roots. Without any connection to what we said about the age of politics, etc., there was a problem from the roots. And I think that the vision of the nation state, the idea of erasing God, has a problem from the roots. 
and we have to face it and understand it. We now see that we are trying to kill God, but he never died. The story of God, I'm not talking about religiously here, I'm talking about narrative. The concept, yeah. The concept, the idea. So when you look at the political system, do you see an alternative to what is happening today? Because based on, you know, we're talking about nation state and democracies, Mm-hmm. And the democracy has some sort of a formation of governments. And it obviously has a lot of flaws in it. It doesn't work well. And some people will tell you it doesn't represent the people. Some will tell you it does represent the people. The Knesset is not okay. The government is not okay. The Supreme Court is not okay. The police is not okay. What can we do in order to make things better? At the beginning, you asked me before and I didn't answer you why I called the book uh, Instead of Desperation, why I defined the journeys that I made instead of desperation. And I think I made it because when you want to fight the desperation, you have to ask questions. You have to go to the real life and see how it's going, how they really go, not what people tell you about the life. And I think this is the answer to what you ask me now. I mean, if we want to improve our life, we have to, a world that we actually, in a lot of ways, forgot, we have to take responsibility on our life, on our communities, on our solidarity. And I think the COVID-19 proved it very well that we are not able to wait to the state to solve our problems. The idea of responsibility is very important in our days. And we actually, because of the nation state and because of the agreement that we made with the state, we forgot the idea of responsibility on our own life, on our own family, on our own community. And this is the idea that we have to get back into and we have to remember that in the end, we are people who live in stories. And sometimes of the history, the old story dies and a new story began to create, and this is a time that we live in. And I know it sounds a very abstract and not concrete solutions that you can vote for it tomorrow, but I think this is a, the main challenge today, to find a way to live in, a, in the uncertainty, in the situations that you don't have the whole answer, and we actually, this is what we're doing now, we're looking, trying to find a way to survive until we find the answer. And to be a, a bit concrete, I will tell you about who to vote now. I think that we have to say goodbye to the old leaders from all sides. And we have to find the new leaders who understand what I'm telling you. I mean, I'm talking with a lot of uh, leaders of the protests now in yeah. Israel. They understand that there is no answers now. They understand that we are in the end of the age of politics. They understand that we have to make a fundamental change in our system if we want to survive and if we want to grow. So I think we have to look for the people who were born and raised under uh, 45, something like this. They were born and raised in the end of the old era. They are thinking in the terms of today. And because if we will vote to the old leaders over and over again, and I think it's right for America as well, but... This is a different situation. If we vote to the old leaders over and over again, we will find ourselves over and over again in the same broken situation because they don't know other. And we have to find the people who know other, who understand that it must be other way to go. 
But you know, you were mentioning the leaders of the protests now. And it seems to me that they are going back to the same mistakes that were done in 2011. I mean, besides the clear demand of Prime Minister Netanyahu's resignation, they don't offer anything concrete You know, like uh, changing the government in overall or making any political or social changes. And it seems like they're missing a big point in the protests. Maybe that's something that they speak differently with you and you can enlighten us about it. I mean, I, I agree with you. One more distinction that we have to do is between the older uh, protest and the young protest. The people that I'm talking with, the, the young protest. The old protests, actually, they live in the old story. They are people of the past in a lot of ways. They're actually trying to get us into the past. But the young protests, no, they want a real deep fundamental change. And I think they understand what you said now. They understand that in the end, they have to offer a new story or a beginning of a new story. And it's a long way. If the protest will end, I don't know if Netanyahu will uh, step down, will step down It will be a bracha levatala, as we say. It will be a waste. But if we understand that the protests are now in order to create the next chapter of our story, or actually in a lot of ways a new story, it will be effective. And I think this is a distinction between the two groups in the protests, the old and the young. But do they try to offer a new path for Israel? Because from what I see so far, I don't hear that they actually offer anything new, once again, besides the fact that they want Netanyahu to step down from power. Uh, so, so I think that they are uh, actually, their discourse is much more existential, and they're actually trying to understand how it can work. The idea of direct democracy, some other ideas that I hear, I mean, they do offer, but nowadays the old people in charge on the content And the young people in charge on the colors and the noise. And this is something that has to be changed. I agree with you. In one of your last columns at Haaretz, I think it was in Rosh Hashanah or prior to Yom Kippur, you were talking about the lack of self-criticism of Israelis. You said that it's across the board. I mean, that everybody has the same, uh, in English, they call it blind spot. You know, something that they don't see. And it seems like it's a big thing in Israel. It's a big thing in human nature in overall. How do you think we can change something like that? You know, through conversations, through touching the wounds that uh, the government is trying to cover? So, as you said, right, the blind spots are uh, inherent in the human existence. But... I think that modernization, the modern uh, philosophy, modern uh, thinking, trying to fight exactly in this. When Kant, the German philosopher, said, dare to know, this is what it means. It's very complicated to know. You have to dare to know. And I think that if we're talking about creating a new ethos, the idea of dare to know is necessarily to be part of it. And a lot of people who see themselves enlightenment and uh, very modern, etc., They're not there to know. It was before Yom Kippur I wrote that the, if you are not there to know, you will never have the opportunity to change yourself and grow and find a salvation, which is what we are looking for. We are looking for this 
solution to our existence. So the idea of questions, the idea of critical thinking, the idea of a discourse, which in Israel, it's in a big, big problem, much more than in the U.S. I mean, all the television and radio, etc., it's not really doing their job, as I see it at least. And I think that uh, if we create this uh, old package of critical thinking and questions and uh, discourse and communication, etc., we will be able not to erase the problem of the blind spot, but at least to reduce it. I want to ask you, you're talking about, you know, the media and the school system. I would say that also the academy today is not encouraging the students, at least not in their bachelor's degree, to question. They're just trying to pour knowledge or specific knowledge on them. Would you say that maybe that's one of the reasons that democracies are in decline because we are not questioning enough? We're not, you know, checking on our environment that is always changing? I, yeah, I think you're very, very right. And I think the reason of it is because we didn't have to ask in the 20th century. The 20th century was so stable, existentially stable, then not politically, not the world wars, But in the terms of the human existence, it was stable. The market jobs, the cars was the same car, the mail, etc. So in the 20th century, we were looking for answers. We were looking for solutions. And now we have to change our state of mind and try going back to the stage of the questions. So I agree with you. And I think you're very, very right. And it's a big problem because actually, as I said before, we were not planned as a people who was born and raised in the 20th century to act like this. Just before we finish, I want to ask you, it seems that the drive, your debut book, its hero is actually transforming and questioning. And he comes from a, in English, we call it modern Orthodox home. In Israel, it's a bit different. It's the Zionist Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And he's questioning there. How much is it related to your personal experience of Israeli? Because I know that you also come from a modern uh, Orthodox home. Yeah. You know, there is two mottos at the beginning of the book. One is a sentence by a Yudha Jadne man, which is a filmmaker who said, in the army at first they teach you how to get killed, and then they teach you how to kill. But the second motto is a sentence by uh, the French uh, thinker uh, Roland Barthes, who said, this is my political right to be a subject which I must protect. And I think that if we want to summarize our conversation, this is the exact sentence. This is our political right to be subject. What does it mean to be subject? To ask questions, to fight over our identity, to fight for what we believe in, not to bend in front of the power, etc. This is our political right to be a subject which we must protect. We must protect our existence as a subject. So in a lot of ways, the book got great reviews since it published in the US, but one of the reviews, other magazine, I think it's called, it's written that reading the drive today, it's like a political act. And it's written sentence that was, got me really excited. They said that the book is like a manual to how to live today in the nation state. You know, I wrote the book almost 10 years ago. So 
It's amazing how the book that you wrote, I wrote it in Munich, in Germany, but you wrote about your state and the way you see the place that you live in, how it becomes so universal that they can write the review of books who say that this is a Israeli catcher in the ray. Yeah. How it becomes so relevant yeah. to people in other places. It's amazing. I guess I have so many questions and things that I can discuss with you. I think when you're talking about, you know, questioning, eventually it's the freedom to think. And it seems that today, even though you can say that we live in a democratic world, it doesn't work very well. You have so much, you know, President Trump talked about uh, fake news. And it seems that things escalate. I mean, the media became a source of a lot of, I would say, not such accredited resources and not such true stories. But I, th- I think it was since the beginning of the world. I mean, since the beginning of the world, we have fake news and we have the manipulations. I mean, it's part right. of the human existence. I mean, the idea of facts, this is a dangerous idea because every fact can be manipulated and right. used by a, any of the sides of the fight. So I think we have to remember it when we, you know, fighting for a fact-checking, etc. We have to check the facts, but we have to remember that we live in a story. And stories, they're all about emotions, about values, about what we believe in. This is what is important, as I see it, in the world. Once we thought Newton was right, and then we found out that Einstein was right. But yeah. no, facts are changing. We will not find the solution in the facts. We will find the solution if we understand the human situation, the human existence, and the stories that we live in, the context that we live in. I mean, people become so eager to the fact that they forget the much more important thing, which is the idea of the context. We have to ask ourselves all the time, in which context I live in? And what does this context say about me? I love it so much. Our time is almost up. I mean, I have a lot more to talk to you, and I guess I would love to have you as a guest in other episodes as well. I will share with our listeners the link to your book, to The Drive. I strongly recommend to read it, even in English. Usually translation, it, things it get lost in translation, the, but I I'll heard that it, it was it, translated it, well. It got so, translated by the great uh, Jessica Cohen, which is a Booker a winner with David Grossman, etc. It's a good translation. So I'm going to share it with our listeners. Right. And I really hope we're going to see better times in Israel and in the world. So thank you very much, Yair, for joining thank us you, today. Thank you, Kobe. It was great talking to you. And thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you again in the next episode of Balagan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.